Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah chapter 14. Book of Zechariah chapter 14. And this morning we will begin the first of two parts going through the final chapter of this book and absolutely the culmination of the prophetic message. In chapter 14 of Zechariah, we see the end of human history. We see the end of human government. We see the end of sin and rebellion. We see the end of sorrows and suffering. We see the beginning of the rule of God on the earth, the return, the Son of Man, the enemies of the Lord defeated, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, righteousness rules on earth. All of this occurs in Zechariah chapter 14. But Zechariah has been building to the words of comfort with which he has been pouring out encouragement. The people of Israel find their peak and culmination here. In fact, keep your finger in chapter 14. Turn back all the way to chapter 1. If you remember, the book of Zechariah is a book of encouraging words. Probably most clearly seen this theme in the conversation between the second member of the Trinity and the first. The angel of the Lord in chapter 1, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, cries out to the Father on behalf of Israel in verses 12 through 17. Look at that in chapter 1. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered, gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So there's, there's the overarching message of the book. God will return to his remnant people. Remember, Israel's been captured in Babylon under the thumb of enemy rule, deported. They've just returned. A nation once millions strong is now a little over 50,000. They're beleaguered, they're oppressed. And Zechariah comes, he encourages them. And, and now in chapter 14, we're finally going to see that the pinnacle, the peak, the culmination, the Jewish hope, and I hope you'll see of, of our hope as well. Let's begin by reading the first nine verses of Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to look at the first half of this chapter, the first half of this event, and the return of the king. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the houses plundered. And the women raped. And half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off 
from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations is when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and one half southward and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in night, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is an exciting passage. This is a pinnacle and and just epic passage. We're going to look at it in four points, and then we're going to reflect on four applications, four so what's from this passage. So diving in, our story, this, this narrative begins with the day of Jacob's distress. That's what the prophet Jeremiah speaks of. This is Israel's darkest, most dire moment. We see that in the first two verses. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, and he's speaking, of course, to Israel, When the spoil will be taken and divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. The houses plundered. The women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. We see this is the day of Jacob's distress. Israel has been persecuted and persecuted and persecuted throughout history. We're well aware of the atrocities that took place in World War II. And yet I really do believe this is their darkest moment. This is the moment of their greatest danger and threat, their darkest hour. We see, first, a global confederacy lays siege. A global confederacy lays siege. Now notice, this is the Lord's doing. It's introduced as a day for the Lord. Verse 2, who gathers the nations around Jerusalem? The Lord. Now they think they're carrying out their will. They think that they are achieving their designs, their ends, Rather, the Lord is gathering all his enemies together into one place to do away with them at one time. But initially, a global confederacy lays siege. Now, all nations. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single army of every single nation will surround Jerusalem. There simply isn't enough space for that. But rather, a confederacy, a union or uniting of the nations with representatives from all the nations. The nations of the world will be in one accord. They'll be in one agreement. That, that means our, our nation, if it survives to this day, will be part of this confederacy. Spain, France, England, the United States, all these countries, if they are around when these events happen, and they may well be, will be united in their attack on God's people, Israel. A global confederacy lays siege. This is predicted elsewhere in Scripture. The book of Joel writes in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the days, in those days and at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. 
I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they were scattered among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. I've traded the boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. God's going to gather the nations, according to Joel. In the book of Revelation, this is also spoken of in chapter 16, verse 16, where all the nations, they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. These are those events that you've read about in the book of Revelation, read about in Daniel. This is it. This is the final conflagration. A global confederacy lays siege. You can just imagine how weak, how beleaguered, how intimidated this meager little city and the surrounding countryside is as the nations of the world surround them. Next, we see a victorious army is at ease. What's going to initially happen at this battle is this global confederacy will win, or certainly appear to. And we see at the beginning of this verse 1, a day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. The picture is this. The, the victors are so confident in their victory that even though half the people have yet to be captured and round up, even though there are still rebels and people who have not been captured they're going to begin dividing up the spoil. That's only something you do when you estimate the threat of your opponents to be minimal, negligible. It will seem like an overwhelming defeat. This was spoken of back in chapter 12. If you look back to the same record of these events, the record in chapter 12 only focusing on Israel's victory, verse 14 sheds the light that before Israel's victory will come this defeat. It talks about Chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege on Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. It's this picture of a cup of staggering. You're done your work. You're victorious. It's time to raise the chalice and have a drink. And in doing so, the nations will undo themselves. But I want, you to, I want you to get just the desperate hour. Not only do you have these overwhelming forces, they've apparently won they're so confident in their victory, they're already dividing the spoils of war up in the people's midst. Third thing we see here is a ravaged and beaten people are refined. The reason I use that word refined is if you just look back a few verses to the end of 13, our text from last week, God introduces this subject. If you, if you look at verse um, 8 and 9 of Zechariah 13, and the whole land declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. So the destruction and the death occurs, I believe, in 70 AD when and Titus comes in, crucifies thousands of Jews. Jews are scattered. And this remaining remnant, this remaining third portion is protected by God throughout history. But even as it's protected, it is refined through suffering. And we see this final point of suffering here. I mean, don't, don't mistake the language. The city shall be taken... The houses plundered, the women raped, and half the city should go into exile. That is some amazing suffering. I just want you to imagine what that might mean. Just imagine that some, some armed forces were to overpower this building, and we had to watch our property being taken, 
the church looted, our wives and daughters raped, half of us being leaving in shackles for forced slavery. This, this is terrible, terrible events taking place. And yet God says in the preceding verses, it is through this refining process that he's going to cause them to call upon his name. God is sovereign, not just over the pretty things and the happy things and the nice things. God is sovereign over all things, and he will use evil like this, even evil like this, to bring about his good purposes. This is how, according to the end of 13, he will lead them to call upon his name, which is the best possible thing for Israel. It's only through this dark valley, through this refining, through this suffering, they will turn to their God, that they will look upon the one whom they've pierced, they will call out for his help, and that God will then set up the greatest deliverance since the Exodus. But it's through the suffering of a ravaged and beaten people who are refined. So that's the first step in our story. It looks like it's over before it begins. We, we appear on the scene, and here is Jerusalem. The walls are breached. The enemies are in. The women are raped. The property is plundered. Half the people are in shackles going out into exile and slavery. And then we get one of these wonderful, wonderful statements. Then the Lord. <laughs> Amen? That's not the end of this story. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand in the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Now we see the long-expected second coming of Christ. Here it is. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. You know, the scripture says that God is many things. Most people are familiar with 1 John's statement that God is love. Hebrews says God is a consuming fire. And Exodus 15.3 says the Lord is a man of war. Now, see if you remember what has been the predominant title for God in this book. Over 40 times, the Lord of hosts or armies. It's been setting up for this moment. The Lord of armies, the general Lord, the commander Lord. And finally, after talking about the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, finally, the Lord of hosts goes out to fight as on a day of battle. The warrior king is going to fight. And it's not fighting through other means, but he himself is showing up. That's made explicitly clear. The Lord will fight for his people. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. He himself personally is going to be present. This is amazing. Now, Israel couldn't have understood, even from Zechariah, what that would mean, what that would look like. We now know that the Lord and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will return. The Lord himself will fight for his people and the Lord himself, point B, will provide, a way, provide them a way of escape. Now what's really interesting is when Jesus ascended into heaven, from what point on earth did he ascend after the resurrection? From the Mount of Olives. And in Acts 1.11, as the disciples, their jaws dropped or looking up, two angels appear and say this to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who is taken up to you, from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
The same place Jesus left earth is the same place Jesus returns to earth. It's interesting also, the point of Jesus' greatest temptation, greatest earthly agony when he's on the Mount of Olives praying if the cup would pass from him, sweating great drops of blood in agony and in turmoil of soil, that same spot is the same place of his victory, his vindication, his glorification, and the utter defeat of his enemies. I love how the Bible hangs together and these threads and these themes from the Old Testament are picked up in the New Testament and it's a unified whole. He's going to provide a way of escape. Now there's allusions here already to Exodus. This notion of God being a man of war. In Exodus 14, 14, the Israelites, as you remember, they leave Egypt, but God leads them to a dead end. He leads them to an ocean. And as they, as they get up to the Red Sea and they've got this great body of water, the, the Egyptian army is hot on their tails. The people cry out in unbelief and they say, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? And in Exodus 14, 14, God rebukes them. And he says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent and to watch. And the angel of the Lord pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, interposes himself between the people of Israel and Pharaoh's army. And while Moses is used by God to part the Red Sea, providing a way of escape through what seemed to be an absolutely impenetrable and inescapable situation, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, defends his people. That's exactly what happens here. The half of the city that survive... If you're going to flee Jerusalem, you've got to go over the Mount of Olives. When David fled Jerusalem under Absalom's coup, he fled over the Mount of Olives. The Lord touches down on planet Earth. His feet, his nail-pierced feet, will touch down on the Mount of Olives, and it will split. In, in many ways, a repeat or thematically echoing the exodus from Egypt. They're water parting unnaturally. Here, the mountain parting unnaturally. And he provides a way of escape for them. He stands in between them and their enemies and provides them with a way of escape. This is, this is what's predicted in the New Testament. As, as Paul speaks about the future of Israel in Romans 11, he says this, And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The very last moment, when all seems lost, when the defeat has apparently already taken place, the Lord Jesus returns to earth, and he demonstrates his sovereignty. Now remember, this this whole final burden of the word of the Lord, the section we're reading, is one section that begins from 12.1, chapter 12, verse 1 through 14. And in chapter 12, verse 1, if you go back, how does God introduce himself? Let's take a look. Zechariah 12.1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, three things now, who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. And we said that what God was claiming was, or he was reminding his audience of, I'm the God who made the earth, I'm sovereign over the earth, I'm the God who stretched out the heavens, I'm sovereign in the heavens, and I'm the God who formed the spirit of man within him. I'm the God who's sovereign over man. What we're going to see here in chapter 14 is God demonstrate that sovereignty. Here, first, mountains don't normally split and make valleys, but when God wants them to, they do, because he's the sovereign God who formed the land. And he touches down on the Mount of Olives, and it obeys, and it splits. He is the sovereign God over the earth. He is the sovereign God over the earth. 
want you to notice one last point here that's easily missed at the end of verse 5. Who arrives with the Lord? All his holy ones are with him. Who's that? And maybe you've been sitting here, studying through Zechariah, saying this is really interesting about the future of Israel. This is really fascinating about you know, a far-removed land that I've never been to and likely never will go to. But what does this have to do with me? Friends, this is where you and I enter the picture. This is where you and I enter the picture. According to Scripture, according to this passage, according to other passages, when the Lord returns, he will bring with him his saints. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3.13. Paul praying that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before your God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So who's in this crowd of holy ones? I'm sure angels are. Moses is in this crowd. Paul is in this crowd. David is in this crowd. And look, there's Joan McElravey in that crowd. There's Bruce Pulver in that crowd. There's my father in this crowd. There is all of us who will not live till the return of the Lord, and those of us who are caught up in the air with him, we participate in this event. So if you wonder, what does this have to do with me? I'm never going to the Middle East. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. At least, at least you are if you're the Lord's. At least you are if you're, if you're a believer, if you're born again. We will take part. We will have a ringside seat. We will be present. Is the Lord of hosts, what's the Lord of hosts without a host to lead, right? The Lord of hosts leads us into triumphant battle. He will lead the armies of heaven. This is described in the book of Revelation. Listen to chapter 19, the description, even more vivid detail, the Lord Jesus returning to claim the earth. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. All describing the same event here, touching down on planet Earth, feet setting foot on the Mount of Olives, simultaneously delivering his people and facing his enemies whom he will destroy. We'll, we'll look at how he deals with his foes next week as he demonstrates that he's a sovereign over man. But where the text goes to next, it's describing this, this, this flight of passage. It makes reference to an a earthquake in the days of Uzziah. There's only one reference to that in Scripture in Amos 1.1. Apparently, there was a very terrible earthquake in those days. And reminiscent of that, as the ground is shaking and trembling, the people will flee. They will fly through the, the path that was not there. Where there was not a way, now there is a way. The mountains have split. They flee Jerusalem. And the risen Christ deals with his foes. And then, 
part point three here, we see the day of the Lord itself. Referenced in, in, in dozens of Old Testament texts, this is that day. Now, biblically, a day can mean more than, than 24 hours. It can be the day of his coming. It can sometimes refer to, to the entire time period around here. Here, though, I, I do think it means a day. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. So here, first God has shown his sovereignty over the earth. The the mountains obey and split. This is the God, according to chapter 12, verse 1, who founded the earth. But he's also the God from chapter 12, verse 1, who stretched out the heavens. First, Jesus shows his sovereignty. He is the sovereign over earth. Then, as the sun ceases to give its light, and as the stars themselves go out, he demonstrates he is the sovereign over heaven. We're back almost to a pre-creation time period. If you remember in Genesis 1, describing the creation week, that there was light on the first day, long before God created the sun, moon, and stars. In, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sun because the Lord God is their light. Here, there's a light source. We're not told what it is. But, but, but it's a unique day. Neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day, neither light, cold, or frost. Things are backwards. It's, it's darker in the daytime than it should be, and it's not dark at nighttime. This is spoken of in, in many other passages. I'll just reference one of them. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 to 32. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sun and moon darkened. God is sovereign. The natural order of days is is flipped upside down, showing his enemies. He rules the earth. He rules the heavens. And next week we'll see as he pours out his curse upon his enemies, he rules men. Not only that, but we see the land is transformed. In verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea shall continue in summer and in winter. And this is that same river spoken of in chapter 13, 1. God is going to transform the land. We're going to see more of this next week as he describes how he's terraforming the area around Jerusalem. Living water flowing out, spoken of in in Ezekiel 47. And then finally, and here's the pinnacle verse. This is, this is the coup de grace. This is the, the most exciting statement. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name, one. You know, God's, God's favorite form of government is not a democracy. It's not an oligarchy. It is a theocratic monarchy. When he sets up government, that's what he's setting up. He is going to be king. Not king over a county, not king over a city, not king over a country. He will rule over all the earth. 
And on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. That's a reference to the Shema, Israel's great monotheistic declaration in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What this means is not only will God rule the whole earth, but all the earth will know him for who he is. They won't be confused about who he is. We're dealing with global rule and global worship. We'll we'll see that next week as well as the nations come up year after year to to participate in Israel's festal worship. We have a state of affairs where there's one perfect government on earth where God incarnate in the flesh rules from David's throne and the whole earth knows who this God is. His name is One. We're going to look at that more in detail next week, but I want to to turn... Now, to, to, to application, this is, this is mighty and high and exciting and, and amazing passages, but what, what do we do with them? What do, what do we leave here with? Four, four points I want to make from this. Four points. As we think through these things, you've got to ask yourself, why has God told us this? Why has God revealed this to us? Because he not only revealed it to the people of Zechariah's day, who Zechariah spoke to, but he caused it to be written down so that we could receive it. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things weren't written simply for their sakes, but they're written for our sake, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So what are we to get from this? Is this just a curiosity? Is this just something to help us fill in our, our end times charts? No, I don't think so. At least four things from here. Four things at least. One, persevere, persevere, or endure. God produces and refines faith through suffering. That's what he does. You see it here? It's how he produces and refines faith. And I ask you, if, if, if you have grown in the Lord, if you have matured as a Christian, did that maturing and that growth happen in times of ease and comfort and fatness? Or did it happen in the lean times, the hard times, the difficult times, the painful times? When did you grow? When did the Lord reveal himself more fully to you? When did he cause you to cast yourself upon him? Was it in the times of plenty or in the times of want? First Peter tells us this. First Peter, actually turn to First Peter. I want you to see this. This is a common theme in the New Testament, and it, it, it doesn't sound good to our ears in prosperous America. The, the prosperity gospel and, and the people who peddle that Garbage want to deny this truth. They want to pretend that if you're, if you're faithful and you're godly, if you're good and if you do the right things, nice things happen to you and you'll drive nice cars and you'll have nice times and, and if, if sickness or suffering or adversity in your life, you've done something wrong. Paul says no. The Bible says no. God says no. That is not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. Rather, what do we read in 1 Peter chapter 1? Let's just pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Yes, there are riches in store for Christians and they're kept in heaven for you. You don't get any promises of them right now. There's a half-truth to to we we are sons of the king. We are going to inherit a kingdom. 
Amen. And it's kept in store for us, ready to be revealed at the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why would trials come in? Is it because I didn't have enough faith? Is it because God wasn't paying attention? No, verse 7, so that, here's that purpose statement, why would trials come into my life? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Peter says to his readers, hey, you've, you've got riches in store for you. You've got an inheritance in store for you. No one can take it from you. It's kept in reserve by God, and you're going to get it later. And right now you may well get some trials and suffering. Why would that happen? To purify, refine, and test your faith. James says it this way in chapter 1 of James. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It says, count it on joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Not because trials are fun, the Bible would not have people watching their wives and children raped, their property plundered. The Bible is not calling us to view that as a good thing. No, this is really fun. Rather, and here's the application, here's how we make this work. We've got to struggle by faith when we're in trials, when we're in suffering, to see how they fit in the larger whole. The trial itself is terrible. The Psalms give us examples of people lamenting, pouring out their hearts over suffering. Suffering is real. The way to deal with suffering is not to pretend it's not there. The way to deal with suffering is to stand back and get a larger picture as this suffering, according to James, is producing endurance, as this suffering, according to Peter, is refining and testing our faith. In our passage, as the suffering Israel goes through, that dark, dark valley is primarily how the Lord brings them to salvation. And when we see our suffering and our trials in that bigger picture, we can endure. We can see that God is doing something good. An analogy might be if you've ever gone to the gym and, and, and worked out or if you've ever tried to pick up cross-country running or something else sadistic and terrible like that. Um, <laughs> as, you're, as you're exercising, your body burns, your muscles ache. You can get a cramp in your stomach that feels like someone's stabbing you with a screwdriver. Um, and, and yet you know, in its proper context, that exercise and that work is producing strength. That exercise and, and, and work is strengthening your cardio. If you're, if you're gonna play a sport, I used to wrestle, that exercise and strength is gonna reap dividends on the mat. And so you do it. It doesn't make the burn go away. It doesn't make the pain subside, but it counterbalances. It gives you a better perspective, right? That's the answer here. So that means if, if you've got a disease, you just, you just found out you got cancer. If you've got huge problems in your family, if you're dealing with issues of depression and loneliness, the Bible's not saying, pretend that's not there. It's all wonderful. Rather, the Bible's saying, view that as God is doing something through that. You need to remind yourself. You gotta remind yourself of what's true. Yes, this is awful. But this awful thing is being used by God for good purposes. This awful thing fits in a bigger picture and a bigger plan 
whereby I'm going to mature. He's going to work out his purposes. Listen to what Peter says. I mean, Paul, sorry. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you know about Paul's thorn in this flesh. 12, 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. The sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the testimony of scripture. And in application, if you're going through something hard right now, whatever that might be, Remind yourself, take a step back and look at the awful, terrible, painful thing in the bigger picture as well so that you can endure. This is how God works his good purposes. This is how God refines and produces faith. Point number two, have confidence. Have confidence. God will deliver his people and be victorious. You can imagine, if you're an Israelite, thinking, Lord, if you're going to show up, now's the time to do it. And then he doesn't. And the enemies breach the walls, and he doesn't. And the husbands watch their wives and daughters get raped, and he doesn't return. He doesn't return until he does. It can look hopeless. It can look like God's broken his promises. It can look like God's left you to hang out to dry. He will keep his word. One of the reasons we get passages like this in Zechariah is to assure us no matter how bad things get between here and there, he will win. God will be victorious. He will keep his word. He says he's coming back. He's coming back. He says he's going to protect Israel. He's going to protect Israel. And if he makes promises to you and to me, he will keep them no matter how overwhelming and impossible it might appear to be. And we should take courage. We should have confidence 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises us no temptation has overtaken you, no trial has overtaken you, except that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the means of escape. Sometimes that means of escape is a mountain splitting in half. Sometimes it's just a little bit more endurance. Sometimes it's a little bit more faith and grace. Sometimes it's a Christian brother or sister encouraging you helping you to make it a little further through a difficult time. But take courage. We live in a world where as I look at the headlines, as I watch the news, I get discouraged. Things don't seem to be getting better. But I know, no matter how many turns it takes, it ends with God as king over the earth. It ends with righteousness being done on the earth. It ends with God winning. And we're there participating in his victory. Take courage. Have confidence. If you find yourself afraid, fearful, don't be. Remind yourselves of these truths. Go back and reread these accounts and remind yourself, this is how the story ends. This is how the story ends. That also means other promises that Jesus made, like in Matthew 16, 18, concerning the church. You know, we hear this now. We're now on the wrong, just so you know, we are now all on the wrong side of history, I've been told. That's okay, because our story started with a man condemned by the Romans and put to death as a criminal. Christianity began on the wrong side of history. So it's nothing new, nothing new. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Doesn't matter how overwhelming it looks like the gates of hell will. Doesn't matter how much it looks like the church will be swallowed up into insignificance. It won't. God will keep his word. 
he will be victorious. Now, that doesn't mean it might get to the last, last second. City broken into. People being taken away. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the promises to individual Christians, like 1 John 5, 4 through 5, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Christian, brother, sister, you will overcome. The shepherd will shepherd your faith. You will make it to the finish line. Have confidence. We will be victorious because God will be victorious. Point number three, be faithful. Be faithful. Open your Bibles back up to 1 Peter. Sometimes people can get so caught up in studying these events of the last times, what theologians call eschatology, end times events, we can, get, we can get all excited and get charts with up arrows and down arrows and you know, all sorts of stuff. And that, that's interesting. That can be helpful. The dangers, we can get so caught up in that simply as an exercise in knowledge, simply as one more thing we know that perhaps we can feel proud about. I get it and those other people don't. Do, do you know that the point of God telling us these things, it's not for us to feel proud and say, I figured it out. The point of these things, God telling us these things, the God tells us these things in order to fuel our personal obedience and holiness. Look at 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Pick it up just a little bit further than when we left off last time. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Am I supposed to be hoping in the birth of my daughter sometime this or next week? Not fully, no. What about, am I supposed to be hoping in you know, my retirement or my vacation or my new home? No. I'm supposed to put all my hope, you are supposed to place all your hope actively at the Lord's appearing right here. That's what he says, right? Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action, which suggests that there might be some lethargy and some laziness in our thinking that will resist this, but we've got to prepare our minds for action. We've got to be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you should be holy as I am holy what he's saying is if you grasp what's happening if you in any way understand what's going on here if you if you have any picture of what the return of the lord will be put your hope on that and as you put your hope on that be holy T- turn over to first john just a couple pages over to first john chapter 3 where john says it even more clearly and emphatically chapter 3 Verses 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you get that? Has anyone here got a translation that says most people, some people, a lot of people, everyone? What is the proper point of eschatology? What is the proper point of God telling us these things, what is appearing? 
If we grasp it in any real shape, it will lead us to purify ourselves. Put it, flip it around. If you're not purifying yourself, if you're not concerned about personal holiness, don't deceive yourself. You don't understand these things. Not as you ought. It says here, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Maybe, maybe you need to remember the parables of the wicked house managers who beat the slaves and got drunk and was lazy. When the master came, he was unprepared and was thrashed. Perhaps it might put a little spur in your backside to remember that the Lord could appear at any moment. We need to give, give an account. He will render judgment. Perhaps that type of thinking and longing and looking for his return will get us to live different lives. Perhaps we need to spend some time in our devotions. Perhaps we need to remind ourselves of these things. Perhaps it would be good for us to think about this great day of judgment and our role in it so that we'd be faithful. And point four, be worshiping. Be worshiping. This is where this all ends up. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14. We'll see this in detail next week, but what does this kingdom lead to? Look at verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. It ends in worldwide universal worship. That's where it ends. Why is Jesus returning to planet Earth according to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10? Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Jesus is returning to earth to be marveled at among his saints. And if we grasp this, if we in any way get this, if this text is, is applied by the Spirit to our lives, it will well up within us worship this triumphing king, this, this king who cannot be stopped, this Messiah who keeps his word, this one who the earth obeys and the mountains split, who the stars obey and shine or don't shine as he commands, this one who stands in between his weak, belabored people defending them from their enemies, this one who will rule, who will judge, who will be king, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the glory, is that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This should well up worship within us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we prepare for our final song, giving us an opportunity to do just that. This great triumph of history, this great inauguration of a kingdom will come, and between now and then, it is our great joy and privilege to worship the king in anticipation. Let's stand and sing, Behold our God.